there's a quote that came out of the book that's literally been shared around the world. It's really kind of a cool thing. Uh, it's basically the, the words that I used to, to describe the book when I was trying to figure out how to summarize it succinctly. What's the, what's the quote? Uh, the value of a business is a function of how well the financial capital and the intellectual capital are managed by the human capital. So you'd better get the human capital part right. This is Better Wealth with Caleb Williams. Dave, welcome to the show. Hey, Caleb. Thanks so much for having me. Great to be here. Man, I am so glad that you're here. Um, I, a lot of people, if they, if they know what I stand for and what Better Wealth is all about, it's all about intentional living. And I'm big in, I'm just big into people. I love people. I think people are the number one asset. I think as a, as a human being, you need to invest in yourself and you really need to get clear on what's, what you actually want out of life. What I love about what you're doing, and I'm so glad that you agreed to be on the show, is you wrote a book about business valuations. You wrote a book on some really technical stuff, but at the core, it's exactly about how like investing in people and human capital. And so I don't want to steal your thunder, but I want to give people a, just a kind of an intro to who you are. So number one, thank you for being here. would love to get a little of your backstory and then go right into what you do for work about the book. I know you have a quote that is being uh, going viral around the world. And so I, I, I'm just looking forward to delving into all this. Oh, great. Lots to unpack there. Where do you want me to start? Um, I would love, so I would love for you to give like a, a one minute summary of like what you're up to now, and then let's go back after. And I, I would love to, to kind of like figure out as a child, what, what, why did you do like, what, what was the direction? Like, what was your past like? But I, I would first love to, to hear from you, like how you would describe what you're up to, um, your book, and then let's, let's go back. Okay, sure. So I'm a senior director of valuation services at a company called CFGI, and we're the world's largest non-audit accounting firm. So we do a lot of accounting advisory, and I'm in the valuation practice. And uh, I've helped client companies for probably the last 30 years in figuring out the value of their businesses and their intellectual property assets. And one of those IP assets or intangible assets that I valued was people, human capital. And you combine that with the idea that um, I was a single dad for probably about a dozen years or so. And during that time, there's some unique challenges to doing that. And I had the pleasure of working for some really great people who understood what those challenges were. And uh, I, I would walk through fire for them. Uh, I also had the opportunity to work for some other folks who didn't quite get it as much. And uh, my level of discretionary effort may not have been exactly the same. And I started to connect the dots and understand in real time what employee engagement meant and how it can be driven and how it can be influenced. Anyway, um, I decided because I've always believed that people really are a company's most valuable asset. And after hearing every CEO on the planet pound the table, you know, people are this company's most valuable asset. But when they really might believe people are our largest expense, how do we reduce that? Um, I wrote an article about how my profession values human capital. I had to be very careful, Caleb, because I didn't want to throw stones at the profession saying, hey, you guys got it all wrong. Uh, I'm not that smart to know that they got it wrong. I just happen to disagree. Um, I also had to be careful not to throw stones at the accounting profession because this most valuable asset doesn't currently appear on a financial statement. Anyhow, the article got some traction. And uh, I was encouraged to keep going with it. And what happened was some people started to show up in my life and I wound up collaborating with about 20 other thought leaders from across North America. And at some point it just 
dawned on me that I've got to aggregate this content in a way that made sense. And that's how the book happened. I never actually intended to write a book. Um, so that's how the book was born. And a you know, funny story, fun fact, uh, the book actually got turned into a play. Crazy. That's, that's crazy. What kind of play? So it was a, a three act a drama uh, depicting business stories and business scenes around things like mergers and acquisitions and business meetings. And uh, during the course of the performances, it, it bore out what the financial impact would be on the business, the level of engagement of the people involved and how that's all connected. So it was really flattering, first of all, humbling and, and fascinating at the same time. Yeah, I've, I've always kind of like said this when, when we talk about a balance sheet and net worth and assets and liabilities, like that's all important. What's interesting is you, you look at someone's net worth, they don't show up anywhere. And that's like on their personal economy. But then how much more in people, in business, um, I'm just so I'm, I'm looking forward to getting like down to what that looks like. And um, I, I'll jump ahead. I'll give you some, some time to think about this. But it's like, how does the typical way of evaluating a business like how would that go and then in your article slash book slash thought leader in this area like how does that translate because I think a lot of people as they're listening are nodding their head but it's it's frustrating because it's like no one's like no one's actually showing you how that 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 your value of a company can be increased and that's definitely the mindset that we need to have Dave I'm one thing that probably makes me unique in the financial service business in having a podcast is I love hearing people's backstories. They just feel like it, it helps me understand mm. so much of their why. So if we were on, if we were on an elevator that had 120 floors, so you got time, but not that much time. How would you summarize like your upbringing slash like career to how you even got into the business of accounting? Because let's be honest, you're, there's not a lot of accounting people doing podcasts and writing books. They're usually in a corner just doing their thing. And so obviously you have a different personality than that. And so love to hear that. Yeah. And that's because I'm a finance guy. Don't ever call me an accountant. I'm kidding. All right. Sorry. Um, I, 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 so I, please, please. Forgive some of me. my best friends are accountants though. No, I'm a, I'm a finance guy. Um, so yeah, I'm an only child. So that explains an awful lot when you get to know me. Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, grew up in the suburbs of Philadelphia, a uh, big hockey fan, big sports fan in general and wound up in valuation consulting uh, almost by accident. Uh, I was working for the IRS during the day, nothing to do with taxes, but during the day. And uh, while I was finishing up my MBA at Drexel, I uh, went into the job board and uh, found an application for this company in Princeton, New Jersey that talked about valuation consulting and didn't really understand a lot of what they were describing in the position description, but it sounded a lot like what we were learning in MBA school. So I applied. And that's uh, how I got my teeth cut on in valuation. So um, I exited valuation for a little bit, went into investment banking, understanding how that side of things worked. And uh, I guess my true calling was in valuation. I found it most intellectually gratifying. Well, and, and so what about valuation? And there's people listening to this who are just getting started in their investment journey. But I would say there's, there's quite a few people that are running their own business. They might be a solopreneur or they're running a company with, with employees. How do you, how do our businesses valuated? Because I'm, I know that most companies have no clue what the value is. So that's like a big problem. But like up until like, as you got in this industry, how are, what, how do you determine the value of a company? 
Well, there's a couple different methodologies and I'll get into that in a second, but just um, when you think about wealth management and you think about the business owners that you're working with, talk about asset allocation, right? So if you're showing them at a monthly or a quarterly review of something about what their pie chart looks like, you know, large cap, small cap, international, et cetera, all the diversification, uh, maybe they generated a return of 15%, just picking a number out at random. But when you put together a second pie chart and you layer in the value of the interest of their ostensibly privately held business, suddenly they're no longer diversified, right? Because that's oftentimes the largest slice of the pie. So it's important that that slice be managed appropriately and that they really understand what that value is. So there's a couple of methodologies and I'm not gonna get wonky and, and so forth. If anybody wants to talk to me uh, about methodologies in detail, I'm, I'm always available, but for the purposes of this, I'm gonna keep it high level. Um, one is a market-based approach and the way I like to analogize it is real estate. So for anybody who's ever bought or sold a home, what's the first thing they do? They contact the realtor and they ask for the comps. So what are the comps? What, what have other houses sold for in that market? And then you start to look at what are the differences between houses in, that have transacted. So some may have three bedrooms, some may have four, proximity to shopping, your in-laws, what have you. And each of those things may be a positive or a negative, depending on your perspective. Um, but when you think about the, a metric inside that, a price per square foot is a real estate valuation method. So in the business valuation side, we will look at transactions of similar businesses in that same space. And they've got metrics, price to revenue or EBITDA, things like that, that we can apply. Uh, another market approach method that we'll use, keeping it quick, is the idea that with a privately held business, I can't go buy shares of your company. But what I could do if I wanted to participate in that industry, uh, I could buy a share, I could buy shares of uh, other publicly traded companies and put together a basket of stocks, right? Um, they'll have the same upside potential and then commensurate downside risk. Again, each of those companies that are these guideline companies have valuation metrics associated with their trading multiples. Last way of valuation and probably the best way and most reliable is an income-based approach. And the idea is truthfully, valuation is a forward-looking exercise. So it's a discounted cash flow model and it's a function of uh, a company's future forecast discounted back to today's present value at an appropriate rate of return. Uh the first first part, the market base, how, how important is location? Like I'm in Denver, grew up in Wisconsin. There's some differences, let me tell you. And I obviously have clients in California and New York. Is there is location different? Like, does that vary different? Or is it one of those, like, if you have a business and it's in this industry, pretty standard across industry in the U.S.? Yeah, the latter. So the location is way more important when you're talking about a piece of real estate, for example, then okay. you're getting into local geographies and market nuances. But when you're talking about a business enterprise, then it's much more expansive. Okay. And when we talk about metrics, is there like a key metric? I know, I know income is, is one of those things, but like, you know, what kind of metrics on a, on a, when you're value like when you're trying to value your small business is, is like those key metrics that you look at? Yeah, one of the things that most of your listeners and most of your audience has probably heard about is EBITDA, yeah. right? Earnings before interest, depreciation, taxes, and amortization. It's uh, a proxy for cash flow. And a lot of people use a valuation methodology that's known as the back of the envelope or the back of the napkin method uh, because their brother-in-law happens to work for an investment bank and probably told them that they can sell their business for six times EBITDA. And a lot of business owners are walking around with that idea that that's, that's the right number, that's the right multiple, and that's the right metric. That's only part of the story. Um, I've written about this and I've spoken about it, but don't get sucked into the idea that EBITDA is the only metric because 
when you think about uh, valuation, as I mentioned, it's forward looking. So you take two companies, for example, and let's say they both had the exact same EBITDA last year. One going forward is anticipating a downturn in their business, maybe a loss of a key customer. The other one's anticipating growth. They're not going to have the same valuations and it's not going to be based on last year's EBITDA. Yeah. And that that's so interesting to me. And I'm glad you mentioned that because you look at companies like Amazon or Tesla or whatever. And it's like, I know those are extreme. It's like, how in the world are they valued at, at what they're valued at? But Amazon's interesting because they're not, they, they're not the most profitable like gig. And as they grew, they, there are many years that they didn't show a profit, but you, you look at like where they're headed and it's pretty impressive. And so as far as when you're talking to somebody, does it like, does it matter like strategy wise, if someone's what willing to ready to sell or like when you're working with somebody that wants to sell their business, what is, what are things that you're like from a high level what, what, what do you want to make sure on a balance sheet is like good to go before it hits the market? Yeah, well, a couple of things before you even drill into numbers on that. Uh, a lot of times I'll get calls from folks saying, hey, I'm thinking of selling my business. I need evaluation. And that's when I start to have a little deeper conversation with them, because frankly, most of the time they really don't need evaluation at that point. Uh, what yeah. they really need is somebody to help them go to market and sell their business. Um, it's the oh no moment where they're calling and there's been a death in the family, uh, maybe somebody's yeah. taken ill, and now they have to do something. Yeah. And at that point, as well documented and supported as my valuation analysis may be, if they're gonna go into the market, that's where the rubber's really gonna meet the road, right? What the willing buyer is gonna pay for it. If we're talking to somebody who is doing some planning, uh, then we can really add a ton of value regarding valuation because not only do we help them understand what the valuation process is, but what drives valuation. Yeah. And the key takeaway that your listeners need to understand here is that this exit event isn't just a transaction, it's a process. It's about getting things ready. It's about getting your company ready to withstand due diligence. So it's about having your numbers in order. Uh, a lot of times companies manage their businesses to avoid payment of taxes. So if you're managing to avoid paying Uncle Sam, um, that six times EBITDA multiple maybe a six yeah. times zero. And that really doesn't translate well. So you get the point. It, it, there's a lot of preparation that needs to get done. And the more time that you have, the more planning that you do around it, uh, the better off you're going to be from an evaluation standpoint. But I would also add, with regard to what you're up to, it's not just the absolute valuation that somebody gets in the sale, because the real value happens around the structuring of that transaction. How much are they getting up front? How much is at the back end? And what can you, for example, Caleb, do with that proceeds on an investment rate of return going forward. So they don't necessarily have to squeeze every nickel in the sale process if they have someone like yourself to help them managing it going forward. Right, I, um, someone that has helped me understand because I, I really want to get into the buying and selling of companies in the future. Um, he's, he, Roland was the one that told me like you can, you can choose price or terms. You can't choose both. <laughs> so it's right. like, you can get the price, but then I get to term, determine the terms. And I just think it's just, it helps me take a step back and be like, wow, well, like there's, you can get very, very creative and, and you can get really, really technical quickly. I want to transition to your book, The New ROI. And I love the title because when we hear ROI, we immediately think of return on investment. But your, our, your whole book is on return on individuals. And I love that because my next book is going to be called ROR, Return on Result. Ah. Because, I, because I feel like if we have the end in mind, and, and 
we, we will reverse engineer our time, money, and abilities to do what's actually important to us. So you have to understand yeah. your book really, really resonates with me. And I would love to thank you just you for, for you to share like the overview, all that you have already, and then kind of go into like, what is the book made of? And like, what are you trying to get across as you, as you write a book like this? Yeah. So the book was actually kind of my journey to prove the point. You know, like I said, I went into this with this idea that people really are an organization's most valuable asset. I believe that to my core and wanted to make the case that it, it mattered. And wanted to make the business case with the idea that to your point about new ROI, everybody in the finance community understands what ROI means. So when you start to hear things about employee engagement and corporate culture, there, there are a lot of folks who may cynically think, ah, that's all the squishy stuff and I'll put a ping pong table in the break room and you know, if they don't like it, they can work somewhere else, right? Um, but what I learned along the journey was that there's so many intricacies here and employee engagement really is the holy grail because right now and historically, roughly one third of a workforce is engaged. So the way I like to analog, anal, yeah, I can speak. The way I like to think about that is uh, imagine if your business was a lifeboat, right? And say you've got 10 people on that lifeboat. So you've got three in the front, they're paddling towards safety. You've got four in the middle, they're looking around at all the icebergs and they're four in the, or, yeah, three in the back, they're trying to sink you. So, if you can turn the dial up on employee engagement, there's all kinds of empirical data that shows what that means in terms of translation into income, sales, safety, turnover. There's a whole bunch of metrics that get impacted just by somebody being more into being at work and what they're doing. It's that discretionary effort. You know, that's where the innovation and the ideas happen. But bigger picture for me, because people aren't on a financial statement, and I, I personally think, albeit cynically, I personally think that until people really are in a financial statement, they're, they're not going to care quite as much about what's the value of the workforce. Yep. So my lens has always been about the value to the enterprise. Mm -hmm. So the idea being that if you're doing the right things around your people, it will manifest itself in yep. not only these metrics I just alluded to, but a greater enterprise value. Yeah. I would love for you to dive more into that because I, I'm just, just back. Like I, I had a conversation with one of my friends the other day and we were talking about where we we're putting our money. And I was like, I actually am putting my money like behind people. It's very evident if you look at, you know, our income statement and balance sheet and all that, but it's like, I'm doing it selfishly. Like we're doing things like we have a daily huddle. We, we have a book club. We are, our, our team is incredibly engaged. I can't imagine if two thirds of my team right now or not engaged like that would that would translate into the profitability the revenue or like inefficiencies and so it's it is it is crazy to me that people don't get this yeah straight up like if you are a pure capitalist you should want to invest in people it's like that's pretty black and white to me number one how in the world do you get a, a study that gets like that can tell you two-thirds like how is that study done i'm just curious about that yeah that, then, that's gallup okay wow gallup and do they just do they, they do just send year. it out to to people and it's just like a private yeah, study? They, they have a survey that they do every year. It's called the Gallup Q12 and it gets distributed literally worldwide. And people respond to these 12 questions and based on those, the answers to those questions, their algorithms determine the overall level of employee engagement. And there's other tools too, but Gallup yeah. is the one that most people refer to. And that, that, that really makes me sad. And, and it also, if you, look, if you look at what's going on in our country and just around the world, it shouldn't shock you. Is that right? If, if we're not engaged, then it's like there's a lot of other issues. The other thing I want to touch on is a lot of people in investment, like when they invest their money, they're focused on the wrong metrics. 
I feel like a lot of companies are focused on the wrong metrics. And I, yeah, I think your book so beautifully highlights that. Um, so let's say you're a business owner. Let's say you're, one of, you're someone in an organization. How can, how can, number one, you take these principles and apply them to make your culture more engaged? Because across the board, whoever's listening to this, there should be some call to actions here and, and it should result in a better val- a business valuation long-term. Yeah, and that, that's a great question. Um, most often, these initiatives have to start at the top yeah. and you've got to have the buy-in of the CEO. And from the CEOs that I've interviewed who've been intentional about culture or changing culture, uh, they've all told me the same storyline. And that is that it takes probably 18 months to two years before the entire team recognizes that this is no passing fad, that these guys are really, and gals are serious about making a change here. And then you have to demonstrate it. So uh, and I talk about in the book, there's one CEO, um, I don't know if I can say a naughty bit, he's got a no a-holes policy uh, and he's enforced it several times. And that, that sends a strong message to people as to what's tolerated. And they've got rules that, of conduct that everybody has to adhere to and live by. And uh, it matters. So once people start to see that, um, that's where you can start to make organizational change. But the other thing that I've heard and, and seen quite often is where, especially when you get into larger organizations, even if the CEO is bought in, as you start to move down to line managers or, or regional managers or thing like that, if they're not drinking the same Kool-Aid, yeah. then you're going to have a disconnect because you hear a lot of stories about how, well, the East Coast runs one way, but you know the folks in the West Coast didn't get the memo apparently, and they don't treat us the same way you guys are. So it's up to each individual to really do their own part in, in being a part of that organizational change. But somewhere along the line, it's, it's got to be some kind of communication chain so that folks throughout the organization understand that this is part of who we are and we are going to live our why and we're going to treat our people in a certain prescribed fashion. And if we don't, if you don't do that as a manager or supervisor or what have you, line leader, um, there'll be a consequence for you because this stuff matters to us. Yeah, and I'm I'm wondering. So, like the leg measure here is, in, you know, culture, employee engagement. Is there any one thing you you mentioned? Live your why. Is there any one thing that a company has done that you've noted that's like, if you do this activity, it equals in a greater employee engagement? Uh, how about if I just speak for me personally? Empathy, I think, is one that goes a long way because I, I alluded to it in the beginning, right? As a single dad. Um, there were times where people would, would roll their eyes and say, wow, it must really be nice to go leave the office at three o'clock. Yeah, I'm going to go pick up a sick kid from daycare and I'm going to be up all night with them and I'm still going to do my work, right? Um, so the, the ones that were empathetic and, and understood, and that's the kind of leader that I tried to be. So when I started to have teams and, and folks that, were, that I was responsible for, um, I tried to walk in their moccasins and understand what their circumstances were. So like, for example, weather. As a single dad, one of the big things during the winter was, okay, is it going to snow today? What time is it going to snow? What time might daycare close? Are the trains still going to be running? And that impacts how you are showing up at work that day. So for my teams, I just tell them straight up, look, if there's even a hint of, of snow in the forecast, for example, stay home, take the weather out of the equation. Don't worry about it. You just do what you need to do. We, we trust you. So I guess it, it's empathy and trust in the same thing. I love that. I, I've been asked on many podcasts, like what, what my quote unquote superpower is. And I won't call it my superpower, but I will say having empathy across the board, whether it's sales, whether it's sitting across the table with someone that disagrees with you on every aspect, or if it's just leading a team well, 
it's it's like really seeking first to understand. It goes back to yeah. um, some of the, the great books that we've both read and it's just the cornerstone. So thank you so much for sharing that. Um, you yeah, because that, that's where you're going to learn what else matters, right? Because if yes. you're having those kinds of conversations, they'll clue you in and understand. I mean, I've, I've heard so many stories about people who were saying, wow, you know, Joni's behavior seems to have changed. She's showing up work at work late these days and Joni never showed up. Maybe we should write her up because she's tardy. Well, how about you talk to Joni? Well, it turns out that there's construction going on in Joni's neighborhood and it's taking Joni an extra two minutes to get to school to own the drop off. And that translates into 20 minutes on the highway. So why don't we let Joni have a little flexible work schedule here and everything is fine, but you got to understand first and you've got to have that empathy. I love that. Um, you have a you have a quote that I want you to share that has gone viral, and so why don't we why don't you share that why don't we you know, like you know break that down and uh, I I think it'll be very evident why it's taken off. Yeah. So um, the the very first time I had to do a talk on uh, the new ROI, I don't even know if the book was fully out yet or not. I can't remember the exact thing, but I know I wanted to have what I would call a mic drop moment at the end of the presentation with my panel and, and not just say, so does anybody have any questions? And what I wanted to try to do was capture what, what's the book about in, in kind of a sound bite. And at the end, and I didn't know what I was going to say. I, I had a couple thoughts in my head, but I never know what's going to come out of my mouth to this day. And that night uh, on the stage there, I said, and just remember, folks, that the value of a business is a function of how well the financial capital and the, and the intellectual capital are managed by the human capital. So you better get the human capital part right. And that resonated. And that wound up getting put into the book. And then, uh, lo and behold, folks have found that somehow. And they've shared it. They've tweeted it. Um, they've, they've tweeted it in different languages. They make artwork around it as a graphic. Uh, they, they're putting it on websites as their banner. Um, somebody recently used it as their entire LinkedIn summary on their LinkedIn profile. So it, it's just uh, really super flattering. But yeah, it's literally been shared around the world. Financial capital, intellectual capital, and human capital. Financial well, that's capital. the whole thing. Yeah, yeah, they're managed by the people. If, it, if, if it, That's why you better get the human capital part right. And I want to be clear for your, your audience here too, that the term human capital, I don't use it as a pejorative. That's not a negative thing. Um, it's people. I'm empathetic and I totally get that. But when I'm talking to finance leaders who are thinking in terms of balance sheet items, the, the term human capital is something that's part of their parlance and it, it allows the conversation to, to seep in as opposed to getting bogged down in uh, some of the other things where they may think, oh, here's another woo-woo guy. Uh, I'm a numbers guy. Yeah. So that, that, that's where I come from. Well, it's interesting because financial capital is the most easy to to put on a balance sheet. Intellectual capital, there's a lot of people that have figured out ways to say, you know, like, this is worth this. I have this kind of licensing deal or whatever. Yeah, we do human that every capital, day. <laughs> yeah. But human capital, like how, like, how is that even, like, how right now, 2020, how do you, how do you quantify human capital? Well, right now in my world, in, in the valuation profession, human capital, like I said, does not appear in a financial statement. We value it um, as what's called a contributory asset when a company is acquired. So you think about a, a purchase exercise, somebody, company buys another business and we're hired, for example, to record their, the fair value of their intangible assets. The intangibles that get all the excitement really are like things like customer relationships, trademarks, uh, technology assets. And we value their assembled workforce because the idea being that a customer relationship asset doesn't have a lot of value or any value if there isn't a workforce behind them, supporting them and servicing them. So we value it and it 
using a methodology called cost to replace. And th th this is where um, I have a fundamental disagreement with the profession because cost to replace basically assumes everybody's fungible. We're all the same. So if, if we know what your salary is and what your benefits are, and we can determine how long it's going to take to recruit your replacement, how long their uh, learning curve might be, those kinds of things, training, et cetera, um, then that's, that's your value. And that value is you know, a fraction of your salary. And it doesn't speak to what I call the intangible within the intangible. So it doesn't give any consideration for engagement. It doesn't give any consideration for the idea that if somebody has been with the company for 10 years and they know, for example, what's the boss's proclivities? You know, do they like to receive information verbally and in writing? Um, is, is two o'clock a good time to talk to them or are they a 10 o'clock person? Just the, the real soft stuff that you just will never capture. So that's, that's the methodology we currently use. And when we value the, uh, the assembled workforce, it gets rolled right into goodwill. Super, super, super interesting. Um, yeah, there's so many questions I have on here. I, I guess what I what I guess I want to finish on this subject, and then I want to transition into the financial, like personal financial economy, because I, I just yeah. I I find that you probably have some good thoughts on that. What what's the biggest mistake that you see a lot of people making? I mean, I know that I know that most people in companies are not thinking about valuation. That means probably a lot of public companies, but I actually don't think a lot of people that you know I'm working with that have companies are thinking about the value of their company. They're just trying to make ends meet. Um, what do you think, like, what, what's your biggest mistake that you see companies making in this, in this area? Uh, there's, well, we could spend a whole episode on, on that topic. We might frankly. have to do a part two. Yeah. Yeah. So I would say if you're gonna ask me the biggest thing, it, it's lack of planning. Yeah. Um, a lot of times, um, business owners are, you know, they're entrepreneurs and maybe they've got a particular skill set or a proclivity towards a, a particular thing. Um, maybe they're not finance oriented, right? Um, and they're running around with their hair on fire and it's a lot of reactionary stuff. Um, planning is, is super important. We talked about the idea of planning your exit. You should have an idea about planning your exit day one. And it doesn't have to be a detailed plan. At, at, at day one, even if you're just acknowledging the idea that this is going to be a process and we need to be thinking about things going yeah. forward, you know? So it's about being prepared for uh, unforeseen events. Uh, this this pandemic, I think, really blindsided a lot of folks. Um, unfortunately, for the small ones, right? They don't have the resources necessarily to be as resilient as maybe some of the bigger ones. But even a lot of the bigger companies that are are well schooled and we'll call them disaster recovery planning and business continuity, business interruption stuff, didn't really necessarily bake into the idea that there's a probability of, of a pandemic. And they're, they're paying the price for it. So like I, I tell my kids when they were learning how to drive, um, even if you're driving down a wide open road in Oklahoma, uh, you need to pay attention to the road because a cow could fall out of the sky <laughs> in any second. Act as if that could happen. Yeah, being from Wisconsin, I'm terrified of deer. So I'm like, I'm ultra, when the sun goes down, I'm ultra aware. Um, all right, so I wanna, I wanna now transition to people's personal financial lives. Um, I find this fascinating, you're in, you're in the world, you're, done finance like you've written a book you speak um, and you help value businesses when it comes to someone's personal wealth number one how do you define better wealth in your own life uh, better wealth is is happiness it's freedom it's joy right that that's what it's really all about it, the, the the money is the means to the end and i i think the real 
end is that freedom. That's what everybody really wants. Because if you have freedom, you can pursue whatever endeavors really bring you joy. I'm always interested in people's frameworks and how they think about money. Do you have a set, uh, framework of how you think about wealth? Um, for instance, mine is summary is like, you are your greatest asset. You need to get clarity on what's important to you. And then you need to be efficient. You need to be consistent and you need to put your money in a place that will literally back up the life that you want to live based off of ROR. Do you have like a framework of how you think about your personal financial life and how you kind of make decisions? Yeah. Um, it's interesting because, um, you know, an MBA in finance investment management, I at some point thought I was going to be a portfolio manager. So I was always fascinated about money management, uh, only subscribed to magazines with pie charts in them, if you know what I mean. Um, so I, I ran my own portfolio for a very long time. And uh, especially like in the dot-com days, uh, I learned just how smart I wasn't um, ma making decisions. I watched one, one internet stock go from like $2 a share to $200 a share. And I remember holding on to it because it wasn't yet a long-term capital gain. And I didn't want to pay the tax on it and watch it go all the way down. So I, I came to understand that when you think about your, your most valuable assets, one of them is certainly time. And for me personally, uh, the aha was that I, I really don't have the time or necessarily the emotional detachment to make these decisions. And, and what I needed to do was find somebody else who can take that on for me and, and uh, get me out of uh, looking at Quicken every day and, and, and checking on stock prices and trying to put together a biotech portfolio. Yeah. One of the, one of the exercises that we're starting to do for people that we work with is print off a page and each box represents a year of your life and you get to see how many boxes are already checked in. And it just mm -hmm. like it, it, what it does is it just helps you realize that we're not invisible and we're not going to live forever. And it's like, you're totally right. What's interesting is empathy was a big theme. And if you can be, if you can understand how everything works in the, in the, in time, and understand that everyone is on a timeline, I feel like that that will make you more of an empathetic person. And so in, in other words, time is 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 the is the thing that you look to and 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 you look at it an activity and you say, what is this gonna help or hurt the time, the precious time that you have? Yeah, and look, nobody knows how much time they're yeah. gonna have. My dad always said it's later than you think. So live now. But the other thing I would just add to put a, an exclamation mark on the financial thing personally wise was recognizing blind spots. Yeah. Uh, recognizing that you can't know everything. And once you start to understand that you don't know it all and knowing what you don't know, that that's when it makes sense to talk to somebody who really understands these things. I love it. Um, anything else you want to share as it re relates to this concept, your book and, and the journey? I do have a couple more questions, but I want to make sure if, if we, I know in an interview, it's yeah. hard you're, to summarize your whole life journey and your book and in a, in a short interview, but you've done such a, such a great job. Well, thanks. Yeah, there's one other thing I would share with you. It's kind of breaking news. Um, very recently, like in the last two weeks, the uh, SEC, Securities and Exchange Commission, uh, announced some new disclosure requirements around human capital. And I ended book one. Um, I say book one because there's a book two in process. But I ended the book um, with at the time when these petitions were being filed in front of the SEC to give consideration for more disclosures around human capital. And um, Pleased to report that they did just come out with some requirements. They're, they're not as much as everybody would really super hope that they would have come out with, but it's a start. 
And once they start, once these public companies start disclosing their investment in human capital, um, the way I view it is we can start to then better correlate the impact of this human capital investment on their market cap and their cost of capital. And that's going to be really a window into the business valuation driver and bringing that especially into the private company world. So that's exciting stuff. And so could you, so the SEC, I get that new rule. What, how does that translate? And I know that you, you shared, but it's like in simple forms to the person that doesn't necessarily know what that means. The SEC is saying we're going to acknowledge more of, of human capital being, being a, an important role in the value of a company. Yeah. And look, you probably, uh, you're familiar with the ESG investing, the environmental social governance, um, you know, groups like Just Capital, for example, best places to work. Uh, there's been portfolio studies after portfolio studies demonstrating that the companies that do the right thing by investing in people get bigger market returns and enjoy a lower cost of capital. So just to get valuation wonky for a second, I talked about present value of future cash flows brought back at a discount rate or cost of capital. So all the things equal, if a company is doing the right things around human capital and they have a lower cost of capital, that's going to translate into a higher valuation. That's the math. So the more we can drill into the, con the connection between the investment in people and their stock performance, their market cap, their enterprise value, those kinds of metrics, the better we'll be able to figure out how to bring that analysis into the, uh, the private world too. Thank you. Thank you. That, that makes a ton of sense. And I get, I get fired up because my mind goes, again, I can't help myself, but my mind goes back to you as an individual. Just think about this for a moment. If you are getting yourself in a scenario, if you're investing in yourself, if you have healthy relationships, if you are exercising well, if you're like thinking positively, aren't you putting yourself in an environment where you'll be able to show up more powerfully, potentially make more money, make, you know, make better decisions? And that, like, that's like, yeah, that's a no-brainer. And it's not shocking that when companies put people first, everything gets better. So I love that. I love that the, the SEC, um, they're not always on, um, they're not always the early adapters, but I'm glad that they're coming around and that they're acknowledging that. Um, yeah, and, so, and look, as, as an investor, and you know, if you're buying into a company, wouldn't you want to know if management turns over every five years? 100%. Yep. Yeah, that, 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 that's a big deal. So if you're like, man, this is, this is really great concepts, Dave is really, really smart. Go get his book. <laughs> um, trust me, I know as, as someone that writes, um, it means the world. You can go get their book, review it. Um, I, I just really, really appreciate the work that you're doing. Um, before we go into like the call to action, um, speaking of books, is there any like one core book that you've read? That you just are like, this would be up there on one of my favorites. Yeah, can I give you two? Sure. <laughs> yeah, I'll be quick because th these kind of frame what I'm about at my core and, and speak to the, the daily principles. Uh, one is start with why. It's a Simon Sinek book. I could have guessed that, by the way. I, I'm serious. Yeah. It's, it's very core to how you communicate and one of my favorites. Yeah, people don't buy what you do. They buy why you do it. Um, and then you, you marry that with The Go-Giver by Bob Berg and John David Mann. Uh, and they'll explain to you that not everybody is a, is a client, not everybody's a right fit client, but everybody is an opportunity to help and add value. And when you, when I married the, the concepts of start with why and the go-giver, uh, that's when things really started to change for me. Two of my top 10 books for sure. Start, start with why ultimately put me um, on the map when I started talking to people. It was like very, very important for me to understand why it mattered before we talk about the jargon. And, and the go-giver is just that classic of, 
truly serving people and giving and having that abundance mindset. I love it. I love it. Yeah. Love it. Love it. I'm such a fanboy. I don't know if you can see over the shoulder here, but uh, there's a little framed thing on the wall there. It's a handwritten note from Simon Sinek. I sent him a copy of my book and I explained to him I'm a finance guy and um, I'm drinking your Kool-Aid and I'm with you. And he wrote back. That was very cool. Amazing. Amazing. Well, if you ever talk to him and, and he's looking for another podcast to be on, it would be a, I would, I would bend over backwards to get someone that changed my life on. And so that's, that's yeah, incredible. you and me both, Simon, if you're listening behind the numbers <laughs> and, and don't forget uh, Caleb's podcast too. We'll, we'll both we'll chop that up and send it to yeah. him. Um, all right. One of my, one of my favorite questions I ask all the people that are on my show is the legacy question. The legacy question essentially goes like this, Dave, this is your last day on earth. You're with the people that you love the most. You've learned everything there, like everything in your life, good, bad, the, the good, the bad. Um, what would you pass on in that last conversation if you can't pass on any money or whatever? What would you pass on in that last conversation? Wow. Man, that, that is a super deep question. But um, I think I alluded to it when um, I, I said that my dad always used to say, it's later than you think. Um, I tell a lot of friends and colleagues right now who are what I would call the type A personalities that like nobody in their deathbed ever says, I wish I had spent more time in the office. I wish I had spent more time on the golf course. It's always the recognition, sometimes albeit a little too late, that what really matters are those relationships. It's the friends, it's the family. So the thing I would say is be present, be in the moment, and don't take anything for granted because you, you don't know how long you have. It's later than you think. There you go, Pop. That's for you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Um, Dave, how can people support what you're doing, connect with you, get your book? And I know you're up to a lot. Well, thank you so much for asking. They can find me everywhere on social media. I'm on LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter. Um, they can also check out newroi.com if they want to learn more. The book is available everywhere books are sold. Um, and there's also uh, a show that I host called Behind the Numbers. It's an internet TV show and a podcast. And you can find that podcast form uh, pretty much everywhere you would stream a podcast. So if you're listening to this one, uh, when you get done, make sure you give Caleb five stars and then do a quick search for Behind the Numbers. Hey guys, I promise you I didn't pay him to say that, but I, I, I echo, um, it is, it's hard to get people to review um, books, podcasts, and whatever. And so um, echo, go, go, get, go get Dave's book, um, connect with him, and make sure to share this message. Man, thank you again yeah. for being on the show. I love you know, One other quick thing for your listeners, if you don't yeah, mind. 100%. And by the, the way, the, I want you back on when you get your second book. I, be, I'd be delighted to. I want to further this dialogue. There, there's a LinkedIn group and there's also a Facebook group, but the LinkedIn group is, is the much larger one uh, called the new ROI uh, return on individuals. And it's a group of like-minded people around the world, all different levels and organizations for folks that really believe that people are an organization's most valuable asset. So if you're on LinkedIn and the message resonates, if you do nothing else, join that group, be a part of the conversation. I love it. I love it. All right, Dave, thank you so much. Thank you, Caleb. Great to be with you. Thank you so much for listening to the Better Wealth Podcast. It would mean the world to me if you could hit subscribe, leave a review, and share this with the people that you know and love.